Luke chapter 13, verse 1. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Here Jesus was asked about a disaster that happened. Well, it seems, and we're not entirely certain on the historical makeup of these two events, but it would seem that these events were, one, a man-made disaster, Pontius Pilate slaughtering a bunch of Galileans who were coming to make sacrifice. And the other one was just sort of, it could have been an earthquake on something. A tower in Siloam fell, and it killed What was it? 18 people, I think the text tells us. It's very interesting that Jesus brings up these two examples, one seemingly of a man-made disaster, the other one of what we might call a natural disaster, although we don't have all the facts on it, but that's just how it seems on the surface. And the person brought this up to Jesus as sort of a theoretical question. Notice it right there in verse 1. He says, uh, some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Jesus, did you hear about this? Did you hear about this slaughter that Pontius Pilate made of some people? Which, by the way, from what we know of the historical record, was entirely in keeping of the Pontius Pilate that we know from history. When we read, I've got to be careful not to go out into too far of a digression here, because it's fascinating to me, at least. When we read in the New Testament about the agony that Pontius Pilate went through at the trial of Jesus... That's unique because Pontius Pilate was pretty much a brutal off-with-their-heads kind of guy. It shows what a profound impression Jesus of Nazareth made upon the man. In any regard, Pilate slaughtered a bunch of people, and they came to Jesus and said, Jesus, did you hear about this? And Jesus said, basically, if I could paraphrase his words, verse 2, I'll just read it here. Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans? The point of it's very plain. You shouldn't suppose that just because these people met an untimely and terrible end, that somehow they were worse sinners as individuals. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you could say this, that there is a sense in which every evil in this world is traceable back to sin. Every single evil. It's just that it may not be judgment or correction for any specific individual's sin. In other words, why is this person over here sick? I'll tell you why they're sick. Because of sin. Well, I don't mean necessarily their sin. Although, let's face it, sometimes people's sin leads them into sickness. But let's leave that out of the question here. I I don't mean because of their sin or their parents' sin. But isn't it sin that has brought decay and corruption and misery into this world? Now, that's just true. Now, Jesus cautioned us about assigning individual blame necessarily for any calamity that might come upon a person, whether it be man-made or, if we could say, by nature. You see, it's just sort of in our thinking 
to think of some people of good and some people as bad. And it's easy for us to believe that God should just allow good things to happen to the good people and bad things to happen to the bad people. But friends, it just doesn't break down that easy, does it? One reason is, try to find some good people. Now, look, I'm not trying to say that on a relative scale that there's not some people who are much better than others. That is obviously true, and might I say, you are very fine people in that scale. But, look, let's face it. Measured against God's standard, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Each and every one of us. We might measure one amongst another and say, well, he's good and she's not so good. But we might say, on God's scale, we are all fallen and desperately in need of a Savior. So it it just doesn't break down as easily as people want to. But look, this is what I find most fascinating about this, is that Jesus didn't really want to dwell on the philosophical implications then why did this come upon the Galileans? Did you notice he never really answers the question as to why did it come upon the Galileans? Why did the tower fall upon those unfortunates in Siloam? As far as I can read in the text, he never answers that question. Instead, if I could say this in a radical way, Jesus turns it around and confronts each one of us, and he says, verse 5, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Don't you believe that's pretty radical? Look, I, what I'm going to say right now might sound heartless, and I'm glad that I'm not going to tie it to any specific occasion. Let's make up a hypothetical example in our mind. Let, let's make up a, a terrible disaster, a plane crash. And some people would think it would be very heartless if somebody interviewed a pastor or a public figure after that plane crash, and the public figure said this, say, listen, I can't really tell you why those individual people died I don't think that they were necessarily any worse sinners than anybody else, so I can't attribute it to the specific work of judgment. But I tell you this, unless you repent, you're going to go to hell. That's pretty strong, isn't it? But isn't that exactly what Jesus did right here? He said, listen, it, it, it might be interesting for us to think about the philosophical and the theoretical But you and I very quickly have to bring it back to our own lives and say, where do we stand with God? Oh, you might love to speculate about where those people uh, who suffered an untimely death or what seems to be untimely in our eyes, we, we may speculate on what happened to them. But the bottom line is simply this. What about us and about our life? And that's why he pressed upon us an urgency to repent. Unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. I remember there was a time when guys were making T-shirts and bumper stickers that quoted this verse, Luke 13, 5, and it said this, repent or die. Well, I don't know, that's, it gets to the point, doesn't it there? Now, Jesus is going to continue on this theme of warning of judgment right here following on in verse 6. He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of the vineyard, Look, for these years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and found none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, if not, then after that, you can cut it down. 
Now, unless anybody thinks that Jesus is really giving out hints for, you know, producing good fruit trees here, which there might be some good advice here. I don't know. You have to ask one of the people who knows something about plants. Certainly not myself. But as it relates to being ready for judgment in our life, this is a very chilling thing. First of all, notice this. Verse 6 tells us that the owner of the tree came seeking fruit. He came seeking fruit. Do you understand that? That God seeks for fruit in people's lives? He looks at an individual life and he considers it to be something like a tree. And he looks at that fruit-bearing tree or what should be a fruit-bearing tree and goes, where's the fruit? Is there any fruit? Is there much fruit? Is the fruit of any good quality? Where is it? He came to that tree seeking fruit. And wouldn't you say that the analogy is exactly true in our life? God is looking at our life to see if it produces fruit. Now, I want you to think about that as a believer in Jesus Christ. You may waive, you know, your, your, uh, your ticket to get out of hell and get into heaven. Woohoo! I have it. But friends, I believe that it's tragically true that somebody can have a saved soul and a wasted life. And that's, that's not bearing fruit. God cares. He looks at the life and he says, is there fruit there? Now, the fruit of the life is going to show what kind of person you really are. Why does an apple tree bear apples? Because it's an apple tree, not an orange tree. That's just in the nature of the tree. And the kind of fruit we bear says something about the kind of people we are. And so here he says here in verse 7, look, for these three years I've come seeking fruit. I haven't found it because, but let it alone this year. I want you to notice the farmer in the parable that Jesus spoke was very patient. It wasn't just like, well, no fruit after a year. Cut it down. Get rid of it. No, he's very patient. He goes, let's give it a year. No, let's give it another year. Let's give it three years. Still no fruit. Okay, now we're going to embark on a special program. What does he do? He digs around it. He fertilizes it. He spreads the manure around it just so it could be really good and healthy and have every opportunity to bear fruit. And the farmer here in this parable obviously illustrates God. He doesn't leave the tree alone. He gives it special care. The special care is intended that there would be some fruit that comes out of it. I sort of draw this analogy to our own life. I think that there might be somebody here this evening. God's showing you special care in your life. You're like this tree. You haven't been bearing fruit. But God says, no, I'm going to take some special care on you and pour into you and see if some fruit can't be born. Now, the problem with it is you look around, it just feels like you're surrounded by manure. But what God's doing is fertilizing, right? He's doing something special. He's saying, I'm going to take special care of this person and do something so that some fruit might emerge. There it is. But what happens? He says there, and it's really pretty harsh. I've got to admit it. Verse 9, he says, but after that, if not, after that, you can cut it down. The farmer, illustrated God, was also just in his judgment. He said, I'm going to give every opportunity. I'm going to take special care of the tree. I'm going to pour into it. But you know what? It's not going to have unlimited opportunity. There's going to come a day where it's like, okay, you don't bear any fruit. You're cut down. Now, why doesn't God cut the tree down right away after one season of no fruit bearing? Because like the farmer in the parable, he's merciful. He's not in the business of cutting trees down. 
Right? The farmer doesn't become wealthy by cutting down every tree that doesn't bear true to me. No, he says, no, I want to be with it. I want to be patient with it. I, I, it's good for me. It, it's for my glory, so to speak, the farmer would say, to have lots of trees that bear fruit. I want it to bear fruit. And that's what God says. I want that life to bear fruit. I'm going to do everything I can. But if that tree is so stubborn and so resistant to all the tender care that the farmer gives it and still bears no fruit, at the end of it all, cut it down. William Barclay, who is sometimes a good Bible commentator, he drew several wise points of application from this parable. I like it. I'll just read them to you. First of all, he says, uselessness invites disaster. It's true. I mean, if you don't bear fruit, you're just inviting disaster. Secondly, if something only takes, it cannot survive. Isn't that what the fruitless tree was doing? That fruitless tree was only taking, 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 taking all the nourishment, taking all the water, taking all the good soil, taking all the fertilizer, but it was never putting out. If something only takes, it can't survive. Thirdly, Barclay pointed out that God gives second chances, and doesn't he? This farmer gave second, third, fourth chances. We're very grateful for God's second and third and fourth chances, aren't we? God is a God of mercy. But then the fourth point is very sobering. There is a final chance and nobody knows when that final chance is i think about it with sort of a heaviness on my mind and heart because you know this easter sunday it's it's the biggest evangelistic opportunity that that we plan on who knows maybe god gives us larger evangelistic opportunities that we don't plan on but we just sort of this this is a big deal and I think about the many people that were there and that will be there, and for some of them, it'll be the last opportunity for them to hear. The last one. There is a final chance. That's why there's an urgency to get the life right with God today. You see what Jesus is doing? He's warning. The disaster that happened to the Galileans, Jesus says, I'm warning you. I'll illustrate it with this tree that doesn't bear fruit. It's a warning. Now go on. There's even a warning in this next part. Verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. So Jesus still had access to some synagogues. Verse 10 says that he was teaching in a synagogue. And even though it's late in his ministry, apparently there were at least some synagogues still open to his ministry. So there he is, blessing, serving, ministering in the synagogue. But there's a woman there, verse 11, it says that she has a spirit of infirmity. She was bent over and in no way could raise herself up. She had a physical problem that was in some way related to a spiritual cause. Now look, anytime you bring this up, you have to be somewhat careful, don't you? Because the last thing I want to imply is that every physical problem has a spiritual cause. There are times that we just get sick, or we just have an infirmity, or we just have an illness. There are times when it's just that. But ladies and gentlemen, we would be just as foolish to say or to act as if that physical infirmities never have spiritual causes. Sometimes they do, and this is a clear example. 
The, the root problem with this woman was some infirmity, some bondage that the devil had upon her. It says there that she was bent over and in could no way raise herself up. I, I like what Adam Clark said about this. He said her condition was equally painful and humiliating. She was bent over in a painful posture. And could you imagine, just, it was just a humiliating way to live. I mean, bent over, she couldn't lift up and lift her countenance up to the sun or the sky. She couldn't look people eye to eye. She lived with a certain distance between herself and all of humanity. So apart from the great pain that it caused her, this was something that just made her somewhat of an outcast, even within the community where she was at. Now, I find a kind of fascinating comment I read from Charles Spurgeon on a sermon that he preached on this incident. He thought that this woman was not demon-possessed, that she was demon-afflicted, but not demon-possessed. And he came to that conclusion in sort of an interesting manner. I mean, I hadn't considered it before, and I just throw it out for your consideration. Jesus is going to heal this woman, and when he heals her, he's going to touch her. He's going to lay a hand on her. And you know what Spurgeon says? He says, if you notice, Jesus never laid a hand on a demon-possessed person. I thought, well, I never really noticed that, but I guess it's right. He says, this is one evidence, among a few other ones that Spurgeon gives, that the woman was not actually demon-possessed, but there's absolutely no doubt that she was demon-afflicted. So what does Jesus do? Verse 12, he says, woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. He spoke a word both of compassion and authority. And verse 13 says that he laid his hands on her. He gave her a compassionate touch. Friends. That woman went to synagogue for 18 years, and she remained in bondage. Isn't it wonderful? She went to, if if I could analogize it to today, say this. She went to church 18 years and stayed in bondage. It it didn't matter anything until Jesus showed up. And that's a bad thing when you got a church without Jesus. I, I suppose it happens in some places. I thank the Lord that we have so many Jesus-loving, Bible-preaching churches in our community. Nevertheless, there's no doubt some churches in our own community and certainly out and abroad in the world that have the name church, but Jesus just really isn't there. That a person could go to that church for 18 years and never really meet Jesus. They're still going to stay in their bondage. But how wonderful it was when Jesus showed up at this synagogue and said, here we go, lady, let's do this. Let me bring you a compassionate touch. And by the way, don't you think that she was really happy that she went to the synagogue that day? You, you just wonder what the devil might have done to try to keep her away from synagogue on the way that day. Wouldn't that be a great backstory to this? Some of you with some creative writing talents, you should make a creative short story about all the things that the devil did to keep this woman away from synagogue. But then she finally gets there and meets Jesus along the way. That'd be a great story. Somebody with some skill should write that. But look, notice what happens, verse 13. He laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. He showed his complete mastery of this illness and disease and deformity. It really didn't matter if the cause was spiritual or if it was physical. The woman was happy, and she she was happy. She glorified God, and God had made an amazing change in her life. Now, verse 14, this will blow your mind. Can you picture the scene as the movie running in your head? This woman who had been bent over at some painful posture, immediately she stands up straight for the first time in 18 years. How good that must feel to stand up straight for the first time in 18 years. 
And everybody's so, the woman's healed. You know, dear sister so-and-so, she's healed. She's healed. Look at her. But not everybody's happy. Verse 14. (laughs) But the ruler of the synagogue, the, the pastor there, essentially, the ruler of the synagogue. I like what Adam Clark said. Adam Clark said, it seems like the demon left the woman and went into his heart. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, there are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them, but not on the Sabbath day. Now, it may surprise us that the ruler of the synagogue is so upset at such a wonderful miracle. But one thing you have to remember, well, two things. Let's, Let's remember this. First of all, how entrenched the Jewish people were and in some regards still are to their Sabbath customs and traditions. Friends, scour the pages of the Old Testament and you will not find a passage that says it's forbidden to heal somebody on the Sabbath. You will not find that passage, period, ever, ever. It's not Bible, but it's custom and tradition that this man was upset about. So that's one reason. But the other reason was simply this. Listen, religion without Jesus makes people worse. It doesn't make them better. And that's where this poor man was in. And so here it says, he says very uh, indignantly, verse 14, there's six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. Oh, now look, Jesus, it would have been fine if you would have come back and healed her tomorrow, but not today, not today. Say, gee, it's just strange that the man would think and reason this way. And if you notice there in verse 14, it says very plainly that he said it to the crowd. The man didn't even have the courage to say it to Jesus directly. He speaks to the crowd. Coward. Verse 15. You think Jesus is going to let this go by? Not on your life. Verse 15. The Lord then answered him and said, Hypocrite! Does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? And when he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Isn't that a great movie in your head on that one? Jesus, if this ruler of the synagogue, if the the head pastor was going to get indignant, Jesus was going to get a little bit indignant right back. And he looks at the man square in the eye and he says, hypocrite, you're a hypocrite. You pretend that you have zeal for God's glory, but really it's only the working of your own hateful, malicious and unfeeling, uncharitable heart. You're a hypocrite, sir. He didn't respond to this man with gentleness. But no, with authority, he confronted that religious leader. And he said, your extension of the legitimate, good, biblical commands, your extension of those into human traditions is just making bondage. Then he gives a very brilliant illustration, verse 15. He says, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? In other words, you can do good for your farm animals on the Sabbath, can't you? Why is it wrong for me to do good? For this woman who's been bound, I love how Jesus says, think of it, 18 years. For 18 years she's been in bondage. And now 
He's been free. Now, he uses an interesting play on words because Jesus said that she was loosed from her infirmity. And in verse 15, he talks about loosing a donkey or an ox on the Sabbath. If you can loose a farm animal, why can't I loose this poor woman who's been afflicted so long? And Jesus gave several compelling reasons why it was appropriate to show her mercy. Much more appropriate than to show mercy to a distressed animal. First of all, she was a woman. She was made in the image of God. And because a woman and not a man, she was worthy of even more tender care and concern. She's a woman. She's not a farm animal. She's a woman. Secondly, she's a daughter of Abraham. She was a Jewish woman. She had a covenant connection to Abraham. And it may also indicate that she was a woman of faith. Not only there being, she's a woman and she's a daughter of Abraham. Shouldn't we do good unto her? And then he said, notice in the same verse, that she was one whom Satan had bound. Ladies and gentlemen, Satan, Satan should be opposed seven days a week. You don't give one day a week off from opposing Satan. And if somebody wants to say that opposing Satan is work and you shouldn't do work on the Sabbath, I just don't understand what you're saying about the Sabbath. Oh, yeah. If it's okay, I can just take the handheld if you just want to give that to me. Or I don't mind just airing my mighty lungs. This is such a good message to preach. So I want you to notice further, not only was it that Satan had bound her, but notice it says there in the text too, that she was afflicted for 18 years. Isn't that long enough? I mean, the ruler of the synagogue basically said, well, Jesus, come back tomorrow. And he goes, no, 18 years is enough. Why one more day? That's enough time. She's put in her time. Let's set her free. And so he healed her, and it was beautiful, and all the adversaries were put to shame. Now, we're going to conclude with a look at two parables. I, I think we see a common theme of warning throughout all this. Warning about the tragic deaths of those people. Warning about the fruit tree. Warning about religious traditionalism. And now, right here, right now, in these last two parables, I think that these are parables of warning as well. Let's read the first one, verse 18. Then he said, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. I feel compelled to warn you that the interpretation I'm going to give to this parable is not the mainstream interpretation. The mainstream interpretation, which many good and respected Bible commentators take, they take that this is a parable of good. That this is the beautiful growth and extension and expansion of the kingdom of God. And it's a beautiful thing how it starts out so small and grows big and is a beautiful refuge for all the birds of the air under the sky. That's the normal. It's a, it's a good thing. Okay, I just want you to know that's the majority opinion. And on this, I am very much in the minority. And that's okay. I'm all right if the majority's wrong. I'll take the right position on this. Well, look, I, I just want to make you aware that, that what I'm sharing is the minority opinion, but it is my opinion. I think that Jesus gave this parable as a warning. He's warning that the days will come when the kingdom of God will grow in a grotesque and unnatural size. It'll become outsized. 
Because, simply put, mustard seeds don't grow into trees. They grow into bushes and sometimes large bushes, but not mighty trees where birds take refuge in. And birds are a common figure in the parables of Jesus of the emissaries of Satan. I think that not only this parable is indicated of a warning of future, if I could say, grotesque growth and corruption into the kingdom of God, that it's given to us not only as a warning because of the context of Luke chapter 13, but I think in addition it's given to us as a warning because we see, in fact, that's how church history displays that it worked out. The years of the Christian empire, when Christendom ruled over the Western world, when the church was the absolute hegemon, it was a superpower in politics, in economy, in in all these other areas of life. These were not great spiritual days. When the church had such great oversized power, I would say the church did not wield that power well. And those, those were dark days, not only for the church, but in some ways for the culture as well. So, friends, I think that that's what this parable is about. And I think I see a link also to the next parable, verse 20. And he said again, To what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until all was leavened. You say, oh, isn't this a beautiful picture here of just a little bit doing a lot and making a thing? No. First of all, I think, leaven is a consistent picture in the scriptures of evil influence. I mean, when Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees, he didn't mean it in a good way. No, leaven is a consistent picture of sin and corruption in the Bible. And here's a woman, and it's fascinating, the phrasing that Jesus, I don't know if, ladies, maybe afterwards in the question time, somebody could better instruct us, you could text in a question, inform me, do do women ever talk about when they're baking, I'm going to hide the leaven in the bread? I don't think so. You just put it in. You just mix it in. I don't know. But it just seems unusual that Jesus would phrase it. That she hid the leaven in the bread. And did you notice how much it was? Three measures of meal. You say, well, so what if it's three measures of meal? That is an unusually large amount of flour, about 10 gallons, enough to make bread for about 100 people. So you see, again, you have the idea of a sinful influence, of grotesque size, and Jesus' warning. Jesus is warning this, and I think it's fresh on the heels of the corruption that he just saw in the synagogue. He's warning his people, the kingdom that will be established after I am ascended into heaven, the church community of which we are a part, it's going to have to be warned against corruption just like we saw in the synagogue as well. I I hope no... I'm going to speak in a way that that is... I would hate for somebody to take just a little snippet from what I'm going to say, so I'll just risk it. I hope nobody looks at these scenes from the synagogue which make the synagogue leader look unflattering like we just saw and say, oh, those Jews, they don't know, you know what's going on. Because right here, Jesus warns, my kingdom must be warned against similar kinds of corruption that's going to come in their midst. They are going to be tempted to the exact same things. And friends, if we take an honest look at history, we're going to say that it's manifested 
more than we would ever want to say in the history of the church. So what are we left with at the end of these first 21 verses of Luke chapter 13? Again and again and again, we're warned. We're warned that disasters and calamities, they warn us to repent. We're warned that opportunities warn us to bear fruit. We see that human need warns us to be compassionate, not hardened in our heart. And we're, we have the, the idea that success warns us to be careful and humble and not overgrown in either our mind or our heart. Friends, when God warns us, it's a manifestation of his compassion. You're driving down the street. Um, a policeman pulls you over because you were doing nothing, right? That's why the policeman pulled you over. I think there's a whole fleet of policemen who are just looking for people doing nothing wrong and just pulling them over. Of course, that, that's, that's silly, isn't it? Of course you were doing something. That's why they pulled you over. And, and wouldn't you be absolutely thrilled if he just gave you a warning? But how foolish would you be to take the policeman's warning that you shouldn't be driving so fast, as soon as he walks away from the car, to rev the engine and peel rubber right out of there? Wouldn't that be a great scene? Well, I think you'd see some other red lights in your mirror very quickly, wouldn't you? What would the policeman think? He'd think, you despise my warning. I could have I judged you right here and there. I could have written out the ticket and assessed the fine that you'd have to go to court to pay. I could have done that, but I didn't. Out of compassion, I warned you instead. But you've despised my warning, and now you're going to have to pay. Friends, let's just do this. Let's just say when God warns us, we'll listen. Because he's doing it because he loves us. Because he cares about you and I. Father in heaven, that's my prayer. That we would take your warning seriously. The, the warning to bear fruit. The, the warning to not see sin in every calamity. The warning to repent. The warning to be compassionate. All of these things together, Lord. We receive your warnings. But Father, we just want to give room and space to your Holy Spirit to speak to us whatever we need to be specifically warned about. Because, Lord, there's just individual lives here that need to hear something special from you. So bring it to us, Lord. Speak to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.